North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Dr. Lowe in the house again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Lowe Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm a naturopathic doctor practicing in San Diego, California. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm glad that you are listening. This is a very important topic tonight um, that affects many of us, either personally or with our friends and family, and this is cancer. We're going to be talking to Dr. Lise Alshuler tonight on natural medicine and cancer. So a very, very important topic, and I was doing a little bit of research today, and cancer takes the life of one of every four people in the United States. So that's pretty common, I'd say, just second to heart disease. It's the top killer in our country. Um, Thanks for tuning in again. Last week I was actually in Minneapolis for a medical conference, so we didn't have a show last week, but it was definitely worth the break. Uh, Booked a lot more guests for next month and the following month, so we're pretty much going to be booked until June, it looks like, which is very, very exciting stuff. If you are not a follower on the Facebook page, definitely check me out, facebook.com slash Noel and the Twitter page, twitter.com slash Noel. And I will announce my website uh, probably next week. It's about 75% done, so I want to have it done before I broadcast it across the air. Uh, let's see here. Announcements before we uh, introduce our guest for tonight in more detail. Next week, mark your calendars, I will be interviewing Dr. Thomas O'Brien on gluten sensitivity. He is one of the top educators in the world on gluten, and uh, it's actually going to be next Wednesday, which typically the show is on Tuesday, obviously, so that will be on Wednesday, April 20th at 5 p.m., and then the week after that, very excited about that show, will be Julia Ross, the author of The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure. Um, she's actually very important uh, in my experience because my passion was really nutrition for health, or excuse me, for mental wellness. That was my um, initial interest getting into natural medicine. So a very important topic to me and, and how diet really affects your mood. And it's very much related. I think sometimes we think that food is just kind of, you know, giving us calories, but actually what you eat has a large impact on the thoughts that you have. So check that out. That will be April 26th. And then the following week from that, that will be three weeks from tonight, I will be interviewing Dr. Allison Seebecker, and we'll be talking all about digestive disorders, specifically small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which the symptoms can be very similar to irritable bowel syndrome and have symptoms like fatigue and uh, joint pain, uh, muscle pain, um, depression, all kinds of stuff. And it's actually related to things like um, hypothyroidism and diabetes and and even like uh, chronic prostate problems. So Definitely an interesting condition, very much underdiagnosed, so check that out. Um, Let's see here. Coming up, I will be also interviewing Dr. Alan Gaby in the near future, uh, Dr. Kenneth Bach, that will be on autism and ADHD, Dr. T.S. Wiley, the author of Lights Out, and then Walter Crenion on detoxification. So we have an awesome lineup coming up for the next few months. Very, very excited about that. But for tonight, 
this is a doctor who's a very well-respected doctor in the natural medicine community. I had the opportunity to meet her on a few occasions uh, at medical conferences as a student, and I've always looked up to her as a role model and a very strong woman who has integrity in her work. Um, she has a personal experience with this topic tonight, so it's very uh, close to home for her. And uh, she's really made it her life's work to spread this information to others. And joining me tonight is Dr. Lise Alshuler. Dr. Alshuler is a naturopathic physician and co-author of the book, The Definitive Guide to Cancer, An Integrative Approach to Prevention, Treatment, and Healing, which is now in its third edition, and it's sitting here right next to me on my desk, and I've been flipping through it the last couple weeks. She's the Vice President of Quality and Education at Emerson Ecologics, and she has been a practicing doc since 1994. She's board certified in naturopathic oncology, so that's basically the study of cancer um, from a naturopathic perspective, and she is the immediate past president of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and a member of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology Board of Medical Examiners. Um, in her history, she has worked at the Midwestern Regional Medical Center, uh, the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and she has been the clinical med medical director at Bastyr University, which is a naturopathic college up in Washington. And she and her co-author, Carolyn Gazella, they have a great website, which I have uh, referred to a lot, which is cancerthrivers.net. And that's an educational website for people who are interested in integrative cancer prevention and treatment. So with that said, I will go, go ahead and bring Dr. Alshuler on the air. Dr. Alshuler, are you there? I am. Hi. Hi. So glad you could join me. Thanks for coming on the it's show. my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely. So let me ask you, is the, the quality of, of my voice, is it okay? Because it sounds a little funny on my side. Uh, you sound great to me. Oh, okay, perfect. Just want to make sure I'm not fuzzy. So I'm glad you're on the show. I know we had a little bit of confusion the last time, so I'm glad that we're actually hooking up now. So let me ask you, what is your, um, what's your journey been like in your interest in cancer care? Well, you know, my um, my interest from sort of, a, I would say, an intellectual standpoint really started back when I was an undergraduate pre-med student. I, I just, there's something about oncology that fascinated me, and I really thought that I was going to be an oncologist. And then I got wonderfully sidetracked into the world of naturopathic medicine and, yeah. and really uh, focused on general medicine for a while, but was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work at Cancer Treatment Centers of America and... Um, renewed my interest in oncology and really have not left that focus since. And for me, it's been a wonderful mix of being able to work with people diagnosed with this disease and work with their loved ones from a natural or what I call an integrative perspective. And I know very much the uh, impact that can have um, because I unfortunately have had um, my own experiences with cancer. It started with my father who... When I was working at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, he l called me up one day and let me know that he had just been diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer, which um, at the time that he was diagnosed, his prognosis was very poor. He was given about three months at the most, and um, he ended up embracing an integrative approach. He, he would refer to me as his daughter doctor, and he ended up living a very healthy 17 months. Um, he did eventually die from his disease, but his health was so good during that time that he even remarked to me one day, about 15 months after his diagnosis, you know, I have felt better the last year of my life than I felt for the previous 20. Wow. And so that really kind of hit home for me as far as just seeing the transformative power of integrative care for somebody diagnosed with this very deadly disease. 
And uh, then about two years after that, um, I myself was diagnosed with um, with breast cancer and um, went through an integrative approach. So I did a combination of uh, surgery, of chemotherapy, of radiation therapy. I'm currently on hormonal therapy, so I did all the conventional stuff. But throughout that time, integrated natural therapies and really have always felt like a healthy person with breast cancer. Got it. So that so, yeah, kind of brings me up to date. <laughs> right, right. And so we hear the term, um, you know, integrative oncology. What is what does that mean exactly? And how's that different from the conventional or just going the natural route? What, what does that mean exactly? Well, you know, most people diagnosed with cancer, at least two thirds of them, um, want the best of conventional care, but they also want to do anything and everything else that will legitimately help them to heal and to feel well. And so most people are already trying in their own way to integrate their, their care, but um, it's very rare for somebody to have the opportunity to, to be counseled and guided to do that in a way that's safe and effective. And really integrative care is taking the best that conventional medicine has to offer and the best that so-called alternative, what I prefer to say, natural medicine has to offer, and to bring those together in a way that is going to support somebody in a kind of customized or individualized way so that what works for you may be different than what works for me, but in both cases there's scientific rationale, it's very precise, and it's going to really maximize your chances to live long and live well. Mm-hmm. And be healthy even though you are doing chemotherapy. I mean, I, I think I heard or maybe I read something where you were saying that you were on chemo yourself and yet you felt like a healthy person who just happened to have cancer. I mean, you felt healthy even though you were going through this process yourself. Yeah, you know, and I, I can't say enough about that. There's, I hear this from my patients all the time where they'll be in the infusion center and patients and doctors will say, you know, what is it that you're doing? You are so different from all my other patients getting this chemotherapy. And what they're doing is they're still getting some side effects from chemotherapy, but typically they're getting less or fewer. And most importantly, people who do integrative therapy I would say almost always rebound from their side effects and from their treatments much more quickly so that they regain their sense of health and wellness between treatments very quickly and then they experience a sense of health and wellness and from that place can engage in exercise and good diet and good sleep habits and all those things that build their health even further. Mm -hmm. So they really are more like a healthy person getting chemo. Got it. Let's let's take a step back for a sec. So let's start with the basics. What what is cancer exactly, and and what makes it grow? Well, that's a good question, and interestingly, you know, that's kind of evolving our understanding of this. Um, fundamentally, cancer is either a mutated gene. Well, ultimately, it is some sort of genetic mutation. Um, or it's genes that maybe are somewhat mutated, but they're just behaving badly, and they're behaving in an uncontrolled manner. And in either of those cases, the end result is a group of cells that grow rapidly, and they don't function like normal healthy cells. So they take up a lot of nutrients, they take up a lot of space, they create a lot of inflammation, and they don't serve us, they don't provide any function to the organ that they're growing in. And over time, if that uh, cancerous tumor grows and spreads, it will eventually overtake our resources and will cause our death. So, um, it's, you know, cancer is very aggressive in nature. It's um, There's nothing really gentle or benign about it, which is why the treatments are so strong. 
And there's cancers of different types. You know, there's cancers of different organs. Each cancer, when people say they have breast cancer, it means the cancer started in their breast tissue. Um, lung cancers, the cancer started in their lung tissue. Um, sometimes the cancers can metastasize or spread to other parts of the body. And in those cases, it's still lung cancer, but it's now lung cancer cells growing in the colon, or, or sorry, growing in the liver or growing in the brain or wherever it's spread to. Okay, so what would make, let's say you have two different people, they're, they're diagnosed with the same condition, the same type of cancer. What would make it grow in one person versus the other person? Well, there's, um, that's a great question, and there's, there's I'd say, several different um, factors that influence that. One is this concept called epigenetics, which is basically influences on how genes behave. So if um, one person has let's say both in your example, both people have similar genetic mutations and they have similar small tumors. In one person it may grow rapidly because there's certain influences around and in their cells that are causing those cells to grow rapidly and out of control. Some of the risk factors that we think of related to cancer, like smoking or drinking a lot of alcohol or not getting enough exercise, all of those behaviors influence the chemical milieu in our body, which in turn influences the way our genes behave. So those behaviors have direct translation down to the level of our genes. In somebody who um, maybe eats a lot of vegetables, gets lots of sleep, has low stress levels, the influences on their genes are different, and their tumor is going to have to do a lot more work to grow. Got it. All right. So those, for those who li- are listening, we're speaking with Dr. Lise Alshuler. Uh, the topic is natural medicine and cancer. The number to call in, 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. So I'm curious about the relationship with um, sugar and cancer, insulin and cancer. Um, what's going on with that relationship? Well, a lot of people have heard um, this phrase, sugar feeds cancer, and um, and because of that, avoid try to avoid all sugar. And it is true that sugar feeds cancer, but sugar feeds everything in our body. And um, really what's more true is that um, when we eat sugar, in order to get the sugar inside our cells, our body secretes a hormone called insulin, and insulin is like a carrier molecule. It's like a chaperone. So it chaperones the sugar molecule from the blood into the cell. And uh, that's in a normal body that works really well. Um, however, cancer cells are very inefficient metabolizers of sugar. They're very bad at making energy out of sugar, so they need a lot of sugar. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that they get a lot of sugar is that they cover their surfaces with insulin receptors. And the idea is that the more insulin receptors they have on their cells, the more that insulin that kind of hooks onto the sugar in the blood, the more likely that insulin will be to land on the cancer cell and pull the sugar inside. So it's a survival technique um, for the cancer cell. So in some ways, it you could sort of simplistically say, well, if you just don't eat sugar, then there will be less available to go into the cancer cell. But unfortunately, it's really hard to avoid or reduce your sugar enough to selectively starve your cancer cells because they have so many of these insulin receptors. If you have just a little bit of sugar in your blood, it's going to probably more of it actually is going to end up on those cancer cells because they're really good at collecting it out of the blood. Um, But what we can do and where this becomes important is with the insulin molecule. 
So instead of focusing on the sugar molecule per se, although that's important, um, and I'll come back to that, it's probably a little bit more advantageous to really try to work um, to, in our health to avoid having too much insulin and to avoid a situation called insulin resistance, which is a pre-diabetic state. And in an insulin resistant state, our body produces a lot of insulin. And in uh, when we produce a lot of insulin, not only does that help shut all sugar into our cells, including the cancer cells, but cancer cells are so tricky that they've actually developed a way to use that insulin receptor as a growth factor. So when an insulin molecule binds to an insulin receptor on a cancer cell, not only does it pull sugar in, but it actually turns on several pathways inside that cancer cell that sends a message to the nucleus of the cell to divide, so it's actually a direct growth pathway. So insulin resistance is really the problem, and insulin resistance typically happens in people who are overweight, who do eat too much refined foods, not enough high-fiber foods, who don't exercise, and interestingly, there's some environmental toxins that can damage insulin receptors and create insulin resistance, so there's a certain environmental component to it. There may be a hereditary component or predisposition to it. So it's a rather complicated condition, but it's something that's really important in cancer prevention. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much about limiting the sugar intake, because there's sugar in fruit, right? But but there's so many antioxidants and different phytochemicals in fruit that can be very beneficial for cancer prevention and treatment, but it's more of... of you know, looking at the the insulin issue and and making sure you're not getting those insulin surges and making sure your cells stay sensitive to insulin. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's um, why this is such an important distinction to make because I'm a big fan of people trying to avoid or minimize refined sugar. There's really no health benefits to refined sugar, but it really doesn't make any sense to me at all to avoid fruit because fruit, particularly whole fruit, not so much fruit juice, but whole fruit, just like you said, there's at least 25,000 different compounds that have been identified in fruits and vegetables that have cancer-fighting properties. And the only way we're going to get all those cancer-fighting compounds is if we eat the fruits and vegetables. So I think those far outweigh the potential you know, harm from the sugar that that is within fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, we we see of all these these organizations, um, you know, the Race for the Cure, the Susan B. Komen Foundation, people wearing all the pink ribbons and everything, and you know, they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars into research for cancer treatment. Um, do you think they're kind of missing the big picture with this? Do you think that they're putting enough emphasis on on prevention? What's your take on that? Well, you know, I don't. Um, I mean, just speaking kind of globally about those organizations, I think that the fight for the cure and for finding a treatment is very valid, and and I'm glad that there's research going into that. But um, there is so much more uh, needed in terms of prevention. You're absolutely right. And very few um, organizations are really putting substantial money towards defining what the best prevention strategies are. There are there is some research but it's you know much less than we need and you know partly because it's it's not a magic bullet. I mean most effective cancer prevention strategies require people to change how they live. And there's not a lot of sexiness to that message and um so I think you know there's just takes a little bit more commitment on the part of organizations and people to really work towards that. Right. And you can't really um 
cell prevention, you know. <laughs> so, so, like it, it's a, it's a lot more vague, and it, like you're saying, it does involve a lot more responsibility on the uh, person's part. And people really just want a pill when it comes down to it. Um, what? Uh, let's see. What was I going to ask you? What is? Um, what are the main ways that the, the top lifestyle habits for for cancer prevention? For someone who doesn't already have cancer, they want to prevent getting this in the future. Right. Well, um, Kellen uh, Gazella, my co-author, and I are so interested in this topic, and we, you know, we when we published our book, we um, have gone around the country and given talks about it, and um, people inevitably ask us, well, you know, I'm almost done with my treatment, or somebody will come and say, you know, I'm not, I don't have cancer, but my best friend, my mother, my father has cancer. What do I do to prevent this disease? And we were asked this question so often that we decided we really needed to write a book about it. So we're actually almost finished writing a book about cancer prevention, which will be out in the fall. And um, it's uh, called Five to Thrive because it's based on this, the concept of epigenetics that I just mentioned and using our lifestyle to influence what we consider to be five key bodily pathways that in turn influence risk of cancer. Um, And those are the immune function, inflammation, insulin resistance that we've talked about, um, digestion and detoxification, and then hormonal balance. And when you look at those five pathways, you actually can step away from that and you can come away with some core lifestyle strategies that have significant impact on the health of all those key pathways. Um, Probably the most important one is exercise. In cancer prevention, it, 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 in my view, it actually surpasses the importance of diet. Um, it's really critical for people to get exercise, and it's not um, that you have to go out and be a marathon runner. It's really just 30 minutes, five days a week, so an, at least two and a half hours a week. And, you know, of course, um, more is better, so two and a half to four hours a week is gives significant cancer prevention benefits, cutting risk of developing either initial diagnosis or recurrence of many cancers in half. Um, so exercise is probably the most important. And then second to that would be diet. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cancer prevention diets out there, many of which are very healthy for you. But um, when you're talking about cancer prevention, you're talking about doing something that you can sustain for decades. So it really needs to be a diet that's reasonable. Um, So we advocate a lot of whole foods diets, you know, just basically eating lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, minimizing processed refined foods. Nothing too dramatic but very effective. Um, And then I guess the third thing I would just emphasize, and of course there's lots more, but um, would be the importance of making sure that you get sufficient rest. Um, There's some very compelling research now that links sleep deficiency with insulin resistance, with inflammation, with hormonal dysfunction, with ill health, and with increased cancer risk. So making sure that you get adequate um, time of sleep and quality of sleep is really important. Mm-hmm. And that was actually leading into my next question was regarding melatonin and cancer. Um, so how does how are those two connected? 
Yeah, melatonin is a hormone that um, is secreted um, by many of our cells, and it's it's secreted in response to being uh, in a dark place. At, so at night is when we secrete most of our melatonin, and it has one of its functions is that it makes us sleepy. Um, so it's it's often taken as a su- as a supplement by people to help them fall asleep at night, and that's typically in in relatively small doses, like you know one three milligram doses. Um, there's some pretty compelling clinical research, um, several different trials, which have shown that taking melatonin in a much higher dose, and in most of the studies we're looking at 20 milligrams, um, will have very important and significant cancer survival uh, benefits. So people who are getting treated for cancer, if they add melatonin to their treatment plan, will typically have increased survival and will typically tolerate their treatments better. Um, the role of melatonin in prevention is a little less known, so we're not quite sure, although we do know that um, like night shift workers who work during the night and then sleep during the day, they're, they're really, their circadian rhythms are very off so that they, their melatonin levels are actually very low, and those individuals have a higher risk for cancers of the breast uh, can, and other cancers. So there seems to be a link from a prevention standpoint, but we're still kind of figuring that out. Mm, interesting. So there's actually research showing this that that a low amount of melatonin is actually connected with, um, you know, cancer. Yes, there is definitely research. Probably the most uh, most of the research is in breast cancer, so that um, women who have low melatonin levels are at much higher risk for developing breast cancer and um, tend to have their cancers diagnosed at a later stage, meaning they have a more aggressive type of cancer if they have low melatonin levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other studies that link lack of sleep with increased risk for several cancer types. So, you know, it's the, the data, although it's we're kind of getting at it from different angles, is definitely not contradictory. It seems to clearly indicate the importance of sleep and melatonin. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm curious for myself because we hear about different diets that people really promote for cancer treatment and cancer prevention, and there's so much debate and controversy when it comes to diet. It can just be endless. Um, I'm curious about your perspective on meat eating um, for someone who is, you know, wanting to prevent cancer, treat the cancer that they might have. What's your take on meat in the diet? Well, you know, meat is um, is the bad things about meat or the cancer-causing aspects of meat really have to do with the way we cook it. Um, when we cook meat, particularly exposing it to high heat, um, we form heterocyclic amines, which are cancer-causing compounds. Um, if there's, however, if you take your meat before you cook it and you marinate it in olive oil and garlic or rosemary or curcumin, really almost any spice. Um, then there's far less heterocyclic amine formation, and that can make cooking meat much safer. Um, also, if you cook meat at lower temperatures, there's fewer of, uh, fewer of those heterocyclic amines formed. So that's one way to make meat less cancer-causing. Um, and I also think that eating meat that is, like if you're talking about red meat, eating a if you were to eat meat that is comes from a cow that was free-ranged and eating grass, the fatty acid ratio of that meat is very similar to the fatty acid ratio that we find in fish. And in that way, that meat is actually more anti-inflammatory 
than it is pro-inflammatory. Um, most conventionally fed cows and the meat from those cows is actually very pro-inflammatory, a lot of arachidonic acid and really just not a good fatty acid ratio in that meat. So I think by being very particular about the kind of meat that you're eating, the way that you prepare it, that meat can be part of a healthy diet and is not necessarily going to increase the risk of cancer. Now, that's not true for every cancer. Colon cancer, for example, has been linked to high um, rates of meat consumption. So, you know, everything in moderation. But I'm certainly not one that forbids meat in my patients. Mm -hmm. So for your patients who do have cancer, you don't recommend that they go meat-free. You just tell them to have the, the quality meats that don't have those cancer-causing compounds, correct? Yeah, to right, high-quality meats, prepare them well, and then to make sure that they're um, eating lots of fruits and vegetables every day so that they're not relying just on meat to get their calories. But as long as they're getting lots of fiber, lots of fruits and vegetables, I, I really, you know, and the data is just not there to support a strong anti-meat Dance. I mean, I know there's a lot of emotional and, um, uh, you know, and, and some very reasoned opinions about not eating meat, but uh, in my literature search, I just have not found the justification for that. Mm-hmm. I want to go ahead and um, take a Facebook question here. Um, so this is from uh, Jenna, and she says, my mother started undergoing chemo and radiation for her cancer, and she has incredible nausea. What can she do naturally for her nausea? Um, well, this is going to be a little bit dependent on the chemo that she's getting, but um, in general, there's a couple of, of natural strategies that work pretty well. One is um, ginger, and ginger is something that people have often heard about for nausea pregnancy, and it actually can work really well for people with chemotherapy nausea. Um, typically, people would take ginger before they go in for their chemo treatment for a couple of days, and any kind of ginger works. So whether it's ginger tea, ginger capsules, um, some people will even uh, take you know fresh ginger root and add it to what they're eating, and then um, taking the ginger. So taking it for a couple of days before the chemotherapy, and then continuing through the chemotherapy for a couple of days is often very helpful in reducing nausea. And um, something that I found to be very useful, which uh, is amazingly so simple but so many times people forget, is just to make sure that people are well hydrated um, prior to getting their chemotherapy and during their chemotherapy. And um, one of the, and it's not just water, but making sure they have sufficient electrolytes. So there's a a product that is available in health food stores called Recharge, and it's kind of a natural form of Gatorade. And so if people can get that, I recommend that they drink that kind of, you know, the morning that they're starting the morning of the chemotherapy throughout the day along with some water, and that that can really help quite a bit. And then there is acupuncture. <laughs> acupuncture is very good before chemotherapy, like the day before chemotherapy to go to an acupuncturist, and then the day either of or the day after chemotherapy. Um, that can go a long way towards alleviating nausea also. Awesome. Very cool. Great. Well, I hope she's listening and she can pass it along to her mom. I have a caller who would like to ask a question, so it's from the 303. Caller, are you there? I am. Good evening. Great. Thanks for calling in. You're on Dr. Lowe Radio, and we're talking to Dr. Lise Alshuler. Do you have a question? 
Um, I do, actually. I've got um, cancer uh, quite a bit in my family. Uh, my mother uh, died of brain uh, and uh, lung cancer. Uh, my father had a brief bout with it also. And uh, actually kind of a, a dual question. One, I know my mother got very, very aggressive, uh, asked the doctors to uh, do a lot of chemo on her, uh, hoping to uh, beat the cancer. And um, we saw her deteriorate very quickly. So I'm curious as to whether or not the side effects of, of the chemo are more destructive than the actual cancer itself. Uh, would she have been better off in not being as aggressive with it? And obviously the cancer would have, would have taken her life anyway, but maybe um, she could have lived longer uh, and a little bit maybe a nicer quality of life also during that time. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a uh, you know, and I'm sorry she had that experience, and it's not um, uncommon, although it's getting to be less common because I don't know when she had the chemo, but chemotherapy and the way it's be, being given is changing a lot, and it's much better now than it was even 10 years ago. And part of that's because most of the advance in chemotherapy has to do with the co-medications that are given with it. So people experience fewer side effects now with chemotherapy okay. than people who received it even 10 years ago. Yeah, hers um, was 10 years it, ago. Yeah. So it was might 10 have years ago. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that might be part of it. And, there, you know, there is there's sort of a, a, a kind of a balancing act, I guess, if you will. When somebody has essentially an incurable cancer. The role of chemotherapy is typically not to cure the disease, but actually is to what they call palliate, which really means to improve quality of life and improve length of life. And so the oncologist's job is to recommend the best treatment for somebody that may cause very short-term or short bouts of you know, ill health as somebody's reacting to the chemo, but that on balance will actually bring them a better state of health by controlling the cancer because cancer is not without its own symptoms. And so the you know the job of an oncologist in, in an advanced cancer typically is to try to create a situation where you can slow the rate of the cancer down and give somebody a high quality of life. So you have to make sure that you're using just enough treatment to do that but not too much to worsen the quality of life. So it's, you know, it can be a little tricky for some people. Um, and it's not always the best treatment. Some people really do better if they didn't get chemotherapy and they just let the disease take its natural course and kind of manage it that way. Other people gain tremendous benefit from chemotherapy, even if they're not cured from it. Okay. Um, just a kind of a follow-up question. I mean, with uh, my family history in mind, uh, how can I assess my own cancer risk? Um, is there uh, any specific tests that you would recommend, uh, genetic tests or, or uh, you know, any others that you would suggest that would help me to assess that? Another really good question, um, and I'm going to share a statistic with you, which is probably not going to make you feel much better, but <laughs> uh, one out of every two men will develop cancer in their lifetime, one out of every three women. So basically everybody's at risk for cancer. and. Right. You know, I would say to live your life as if you were at risk for cancer. Um, and there really is not a test that's valid that can tell you at this point in time what your risk of developing any particular kind of cancer is. Um, so until we develop that test, I think it makes a lot of sense to assume that we are all at risk. 
and to take that risk seriously and to really use use that as an opportunity or as a mo- motivator to minimize risk. Um, and ha- having said that, I would also just make a comment that family history or, or ge- truly genetic, you know, inherited genetic causes of cancer really only account for 10% of all cancers. Um, and that's including breast cancer, which is most. Yeah, it's actually, if you take all the cancers together, it's really more like 5%. So really what that means is when cancer, quote, kind of runs in the family, um, probably what's running in the family is inherited lifestyle behaviors um, and certain, going back to this, epigenetic uh, influences so that you you're, the way you're sort of telling your genes to behave may in part be things that you learned or inherited from your parents. But that's good news because you can change all that. Right. right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Very yeah, thanks for question. yeah, thanks a lot for calling in. Yep. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Those are some really, really good questions. I think a lot of people wonder those same things sometimes. Um, I have another caller mm-hmm. here from the 508 area code. Caller, are you there? I'm here. Great. Thanks for calling Dr. Low Radio. We have Dr. Lise Oshler on the air. What's your question? My question is, my 10-year-old son, when he was six, had a CT scan of the brain. About a month later, the study came out about what high dosage um, people get from CT scans. It was calibrated for children. I've done everything that I can think of to do to, you know, minimize his risk for developing cancer because of that. I don't let him have x-rays for other things. I'm careful with his diet. We did a series of, like, Epsom salt, baking soda baths. I own an infrared sauna. He's not allowed to use a cell phone. Is there anything else you can think of that I could do to help, you know, mitigate the effects of that high dose of radiation at such a young age? Well, you know, um, most of the radiation is a very short-lived phenomenon. So um, actually, if there was any damage from that CT scan, or and by damage I mean if there was any genetic damage that occurred and there's no longer any radiation in his body from that, so really the only thing that would be residual would be that um, genetically mutated cell and if it has in turn created any daughter cells. Um, so in that sense, the best thing to do is to really cre- try to create an environment in him and in his body that is disfavorable to cancer growth. And that's where um, doing things that will promote his immune function, that will decrease inflammation, um, that will decrease insulin resistance and blood sugar balancing problems, um, that's where you know most of your benefit is going to be. So... Um, I would actually really encourage you to evaluate his diet and make sure he's eating as healthfully as possible and still enjoying life, of course, that he's exercising, you know, and that he's getting enough rest. I mean, those are really fundamental things which will actually do more for him in terms of cancer prevention than almost anything. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. That's a that's a very good question. Um, I'm I'm curious. Just it kind of came from that question that she asked for myself. Is let's say a person knows they're about to go have um, you know imaging of some sort. You know they know they're going to get an X-ray. They're going to get a CT scan. Is there anything they can do beforehand to minimize effects? Because you said it's short lived. Yeah, you know. Yeah, if they right, if it's a if it's a scan, um, it makes a lot of sense to take. Um, a fairly high dose of certain, uh, particularly 
antioxidants that we know interfere with the damaging effects of radiation or prevent the damaging effects of radiation. So if people know they're going in for a scan, you know, I would um, recommend they load up on things like glutathione, vitamin E, um, maybe even some selenium, and to to kind of give themselves extra layer of protection um, going in. And then I would also recommend they take it, you know, a day afterwards, even though the radiation really is going to be dissipated by then. Um, and yeah, that that theoretically, anyway, should should go a long way towards reducing the chance of damage from the radiation. Okay, so for those listeners out there who aren't familiar with um, what some of those compounds are, like glutathione, for example, what is that? How can they get? How can they actually take that in? What form? Yeah, glutathione is a. Um, it's actually the body's most prevalent antioxidant, and um, when we take vitamin C or vitamin E, much of the reason for taking those is to regenerate the glutathione in our body. So it's a really central antioxidant. And um, we used to think that you can't absorb glutathione orally, but in fact you can. So you can take glutathione as a supplement. Um, all fresh foods, so freshly, anything that's fresh uh, has is loaded up with glutathione, which is one of the reasons why it's important to, to eat, you know, kind of what they call live foods, or not, I don't mean exactly live, but things that, you know, just picked and just harvested, um, minimally processed. And then there are certain molecule, uh, compounds that are precursors to glutathione that help our body make more glutathione, things like vitamin C, selenium, um, NAC, which just stands for N-acetylcysteine, alpha-lipoic acid. These are compounds which our body uses to make glutathione, and that's another way you can take those as supplements um, also to help get our glutathione level up. All right. Sounds good. And I guess that um, ties into my next question is is that um, what are your top anti-cancer supplements? Are those the ones that you mentioned? Are, are there any other ones that you would recommend for someone who um, is wanting to prevent or treat? I know that those might be two different types of supplements. Um, what would you recommend for that? Yeah, you know, on my short list for, and we'll just talk, maybe talk about cancer prevention, mm-hmm. um, definitely top of the list, and I don't, this isn't necessarily in order, but um, is vitamin D. There is an increasingly broad and deep um, amount of research really demonstrating that people with higher levels of vitamin D have lower risks of almost every cancer that we can diagnose. So there seems to be a very clear inverse correlation between vitamin D and cancer. And that's available as a supplement. I always recommend that people have their vitamin D level checked before they start supplementing because that way they can, number one, determine if they, in fact, are deficient. And then, number two, when they start taking a supplement, they can recheck their vitamin D in a few months and see if the supplement level that they're taking is adequate or too much, too little, and they can adjust appropriately. Um, so vitamin D is really important. And I, I heard you're having somebody come on your show to talk about digestive health and, and bacterial balance, and that's actually mm-hmm. another really important um, anti-cancer or cancer prevention supplementation is, is probiotics or um, uh, various kinds of beneficial or healthy bacteria. Um, 70% of our immune system is located in our digestive tract, and the bacteria that we have in our digestive tract influence the immunity that our body um, has, and it has, there's direct link between digestive health and the amount of bacteria and the type of bacteria and our ability to recognize and destroy cancer cells. So it's uh, really important to have good digestive health. 
Um, and then another item on the list is um, essential fatty acids. And these would be uh, fatty acids found in things like nuts, seeds, fish. Um, these essential fatty acids have very potent effects on decreasing inflammation, which is a very strong risk factor for cancer development. And they also support immune function and hormonal level balancing and detoxification. So essential fatty acids are really important. And then, as you said, glutathione or other antioxidants, you know, primarily those found in, in plants are, are also a really important part of a cancer anti-cancer plan. And those are for cancer prevention um, specifically, right? What, what about mm-hmm. if a person already has cancer and they, they decide to go the conventional route and they want to, um, you know, do some things naturally to help support the treatment that they're doing or alleviate some of the side effects? Um, what would you recommend for those folks? Well, you know, that's um, actually why Carolyn uh, and I wrote the Definitive Guide to Cancer. It's about um, the size of Harry Potter, so it's a pretty thick book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, the book's focus is really exactly on answering that question. If somebody has cancer and they're engaged in conventional treatment, which natural therapies should they use? And so we try to answer that question with a lot of scientifically valid information, but in a very easy and digestible format. Lots of charts, lots of tables, um, lots of you know bullet points, and some some background information on why things are helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I'm answering this in an evasive way is because there's really not one size fits all. It depends on which chemotherapy or radiation treatment you're getting, what kind right. of cancer you have, um, you know, what your state of health is. All of that's going to influence what nutrients are most appropriate. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm flipping through, through the book right now, and it's uh, it is very thick. And but I love how it's. Um, it's very, very detailed. So for those listeners who are tuning in, I would strongly recommend to get the book, um, even just for prevention, but also if you know someone who is you know, going the conventional route or if you are yourself for treatment of cancer, pick up the book because it is a very um, well-researched, well-written book. Um, it goes in you know, very extensive detail, um, looking at the different types of chemo that you might be on and the herbs and nutrients that could help support that or the herbs and nutrients that you definitely would want to avoid because there could be interactions. And I think that that's a common reason why conventional docs might um, recommend that a person doesn't do natural therapies is because there are um, interactions, right? I mean, there are things, yeah, it might be helpful for a person not on chemo, but if you're on chemo, certain supplements might actually interfere with the chemo, correct? Absolutely, yeah. You know, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. Um, Particularly if you're getting treatment, there's um, some compounds which just sometimes for very unpredict in in ways that we wouldn't really imagine or or that are not obvious really can interfere with chemo. Whether they there's certain herbs that change the way the chemotherapy agent is broken down in the body, so it can really either make that chemotherapy not available so you don't get enough to kill the cancer cells, or it can um, not prevent it from being broken down, so you get too many side effects from it. It's important right. to, to make sure that you're not going to take something that's contraindicated. Mm-hmm. I have a, a Facebook question here from um, from Sean. He wants to know, why do, and this is something you, you may have already answered, so I apologize if it's if redundant. Um, why do some people have success stories battling cancer with natural approaches while others don't? What is a big factor that is that might be often overlooked? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, boy, if I had the answer to that, I would <laughs> I would love to have the answer to that. But um, 
<laughs> what I can tell you is that there is. Sorry, sorry that's my dog. <laughs> I know I'm I'm wishing my dog would bark too, but. <laughs> um, there can be a variety of um, things that that are probably having to do with that. You know, there's there's this phenomenon called spontaneous remission, and this occurs mm-hmm. in people who have cancer, and then it just goes away. And uh, we're still just beginning to figure that out. But it seems like in almost all cases that spontaneous remission has to do with the immune system breaking through the um, masking and resistance that cancer cells create. Cancer cells are really good camouflagers. They camouflage themselves away from the immune system in a variety of ways, making it really difficult for the immune system to see and attack cancer cells. And in people who have these so-called spontaneous remissions, one of the characteristics is that their tumors, um, bef- you know, in the rare cases where we can catch it before that goes away, are just infiltrated with, with immune cells. Mm-hmm. So there's something that makes those tumor cells reactive. So I think what happens in people who use natural therapies to exclusively and who whose cancer goes away is that for whatever reason they've figured out that magic combination of therapies that helps their immune system recognize their tumor mm-hmm. and destroy it. And, um, you know, not, of course, all those therapies, those therapies don't work for everyone, but um, it, it does definitely is possible for some people. I think it's kind of a um, bell-shaped curve so that there's, m- most people will benefit the most from a combination approach. There mm-hmm. are a smaller number of people that really just benefit primarily from the conventional therapies, and then there's also a small group of people that benefit primarily from the natural therapies. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask you that too, is that, and this might be a difficult question, you know, your book is is aimed towards people who have chosen to go the conventional route and want to integrate natural therapies into their treatment plan, right? But what about, I mean, do you, do you recommend chemo to every patient? Are there some types of cancers where you think going the natural route is doable? Yeah, you know, I do. Um, we, you know, we wrote that book primarily because that's representative of most people. Most people with cancer are in that category of right. getting conventional therapy and trying to figure out what else they can do. Um, now, in my own practice, there are definitely situations where um, somebody is going to receive very little benefit from chemotherapy, and I would recommend away from it. Um, and you know, that would be typically in a situation where the chemotherapy is unlikely to cure their disease and is likely to cause a lot of distress. Um, And so, yes, there's definitely times when chemotherapy is certainly not the answer. And, you know, in reality, I hope in my lifetime and certainly in the next generation's lifetime, chemotherapy will be considered kind of an archaic tool. Um, Mm -hmm. Conventional therapy is getting a lot more precise. It's becoming more biological in nature. So I think chemotherapy is is really going to be Become something that we used to do. Right, I definitely hope so. Yeah, because I know for myself, my grandmother, you know, she passed away from cancer, and it's very common in my family as well. And so I would love to see that be the case. Um, so, but the more research we do, the better. And um, you know, especially having doctors like you come on board and really helping to promote the natural side of it, because there's so much that we can offer with naturopathic medicine for this. Um, so I'm curious, and this is a, a question from Sean Croxon of Underground Wellness. He's a big um, health, uh, what's the word I should say? He's kind of a health nut in that he reads just 
all the time, day and night. And so he's, this is more of a complicated question. He's curious, what do you think about antineoplastins? Are you familiar with these, and what's your your opinion on those for cancer? Yeah, so he's referring to some compounds that were named by uh, Stanley Brzezinski, who is a uh, medical doctor who set up a clinic, and he's really spent the last, gosh, I think almost 30 years or more um, studying these. And these are... Um, uh, am I thinking of the right thing, Antonio? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he. Uh, so these are things that are found in the urine. Um, mm-hmm. They're waste products, and they have had some pretty um, remarkable effects in in killing cancer cells in petri dishes. And then he's done a lot of research, particularly in people with. He started doing a lot of research in in young people with brain cancers, and had some pretty good success stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his his I think the potential of these is is there for sure. He himself will say that he's still doing the research mm-hmm. and still really try, trying to fully understand the potential of this therapy. Um, so I think that you know the 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 jury is still out on that, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's certainly an option for some people. Great. So the potential is there, but just more research and more implementation needs to happen. I think he really ran into a lot of problems actually carrying out his work because of um, involvement just with politics and everything. So hopefully that can come around again if it was, you know, showing positive results. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I know that you know you have dealt with this personally in your life. You've had cancer yourself, and um, I'm curious, what did you? Um, what what did you learn through this experience? What did cancer provide for you? What did it teach you? Oh boy, so many things. <laughs> um, you know, I I think I often think of of my own experience with cancer as one of my most painful um, teachers, but a, a teacher it was nonetheless. And um, you know, I learned a lot all the way from um, I think anybody that's diagnosed with cancer has the opportunity to really recognize in a very fundamental way their own mortality. Um, And there's a lot of implications when one does that. And uh, part of which is just really learning to value life and to value the the things that make life rich and meaningful even more. Um, So I I think that's a lesson I carry with me every day and has really changed the way that I live and the decisions that I make. Um, and, you know, I, I also think my own experience with cancer, being somebody who uh, treats people with cancer uh, sort of from the other side of the desk, so to speak, has really given me a, a different level of empathy and understanding for what somebody's going through and the, the you know, the scariness of it, the uncertainty of it, uh, the, the challenge of making many decisions, very few of which are black and white, mostly are sort of shades of gray. Um, and just having that empathy, I think, helps me to be a more compassionate doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've just, yeah, I've learned things about my own health, too, and just my my own, um, you know, ways that I can improve my health and ways that uh, things that perhaps were risk factors for me that I didn't realize. And so, you know, there's lots lots of learnings for me on lots of levels. Mm-hmm. And speaking from your own experience, you know, for the listeners out there who maybe they were just diagnosed and they're just feeling overwhelmed, this is daunting, you know, their their head is spinning, Where, what can you recommend for them in just starting out this this new experience that they're going to be having? 
Well, it, you're absolutely right. Cancer is daunting and can be overwhelming. That's a really good word to use. Um, it's actually a very disempowering illness. The the disease itself feels very disempowering. The treatment world of cancer is very disempowering. So I think that the most important thing is to um, very quickly uh, find and put into place whatever anchors you need to regain your own sense of empowerment. And, you know, for some people that means just reconnecting with their loved ones uh, could for some people mean uh, reconnecting with, with their work. Uh, it could mean their spiritual practice, whatever it is that gives them a sense of empowerment and uh, a sense of embodiment in their life. And then from that place of empowerment, it really is just one step at a time. That is, There's really no place that that's more true in the world of cancer because once you're in treatment, everything is very unpredictable. And even how you respond to chemotherapy changes dramatically sometimes from one cycle to the next. So it becomes really important to just take one step at a time, be in today and figure out what you need to do today, and you'll then figure it out again tomorrow. Great. Where can listeners learn more about you, um, about your book, and um, resources for finding an integrative doctor for themselves? Yeah, well, there's several uh, that I'll mention. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. But uh, you mentioned uh, Carolyn and I's website earlier, uh, cancerthrivers.net, and that's an educational resource. Um, we try to give people lots of free information to empower themselves. Um, uh, my own website is drlise.net, and I think the best place for people to start in the search for an integrative provider, uh, there's two places. One is naturedoctor.org, which is the website for the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. So these are qualified natural health care providers. Um, and then there's a subspecialty within the naturopathic profession, which is uh, the oncology, sort of the naturopathic oncologists. And that website's a little harder to remember, but it's it's onc a n p o n c a n p dot org. So naturedoctor dot org would get you there too. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before I let you go? Um, well, I guess I would just you know thank you for having me on the show, and I appreciate you you know giving some airtime to uh, to natural medicine and and natural integrative cancer care. And I guess my closing comment would just be to to really remind people that. Um, you know, within each of us, there really is the ability to bring greater health and wellness, no matter what disease, what diagnosis, what treatment we're experiencing, that every day presents an opportunity to make a choice. We might make 10 bad ones, but we might make one good one, and that's, you know, really all we can do and all we should do, keep making those good choices. Very well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Alshuler, for coming on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You have a fantastic night. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was an awesome show. Dr. Lise Alshuler, definitely a role model of mine. Um, it was an honor to have her on uh, for sure. Next week's show, I will be interviewing Dr. Thomas O'Brien um, on gluten sensitivity. That will actually be on Wednesday night um, at 5 p.m., so tune in for that. And, um, yeah, thanks for the questions. Thank you so much for the Facebook questions and the uh, two callers that called in. And, um, yeah, that'll, that's our time. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye. 
North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.